Hello, welcome to episode number 321 of the Apolog Podcast. I'm your host, Simon Head. Today's podcast is brought to you in part by AIXDSP.com. Get affordable and useful plugins for your digital audio workstation. Get the IC Intuition Compressor. is a compressor that gives you a clear and intuitive visual display that shows exactly what is happening to your audio at all times. Audio nerd stuff. Click the link in the description for more information. If you want to support my work on a monthly basis, go to patreon.com slash Pledge as much or as little as you want on a monthly basis to help with my hosting and gas fees, and you can cancel any time. Go buy a t-shirt. Go to applelog.ca slash shop. Uh, and I think there's, a, yeah, there's some other stuff there. Just go check it out. iTunes. Don't forget to subscribe and review the show. Please give it five stars. Like and share on Facebook by going to facebook.com slash pod. Follow me on Twitter and Instagram at simonhead666. Now, I might warn you, my Instagram is mostly just pictures of my bicycle. Okay, everybody, today on the show, I have Aston Stevens, who who is an old friend and a work, um, I mean, compadre. He, he runs and operates a label called Boss Tunage that started off in the early 90s, took a little bit of a hiatus in the mid-90s, came back in the early 2000s, and that's where uh, I came into the picture with my band Foursquare, is where he put out our first album in Europe on CD. Uh, I think I had one conversation with him, too, before that. <laughs> And yeah, so what he's what what Aston's doing right now is he's uh, doing a YouTube channel, which he's telling stories of thirty years of putting out records, hundreds and hundreds of records, and uh, doing it for the art and the love, and not for the money. And uh, these are the type of people like having on the show, people that understand the concept of work and what it takes. And you know, it's 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 fascinating to watch and see and talk to someone who has so much drive. Ladies and gentlemen, Mister Aston Stevens. From Boss Tunage Records on the Apple Podcast. I think you put a, rec- a CD out for us, Foursquare CD. Yep, yep. It must be about that. Yeah, 2000. Was it about 2001? One or two. Because I know yeah. I, it came out in Canada in, in one, and I think it might have been later, maybe 2000, later in 2001 or early 2002. Regardless, yeah. it was it was 20 years ago. And um, yeah. Yeah. And I, I, don't know, I can't remember who came up with the idea to change the color scheme on it. I think it was you. I think so. I, yeah, I I can't remember as well to be honest because I'm obviously I'm doing this YouTube channel. Yeah, and yeah. the the early the early years, the first sort of three or four years are all really crystal clear. But that whole period from like 1999 to 2004, because we were doing so much stuff. Yeah, it's all a big blur that I'm having to kind of now try and untangle by the time I get to recording <laughs> uh, about each band to remember. But I think I think that. Yeah, you sent me it in, probably from one of the other Canadian bands or contacts saying, oh, get in touch with Aston. And um, yep. that's probably how it happened, because there were so many bands in Canada yeah. kind of contact me on the back of doing like the Asexuals and uh, yes. Rise. Yes. Oh, Rise. And, um, it was Rise, because John Pastore yeah, and I are friends. John Pastore. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. he was kind of the first one that I managed to get back in touch with when I relaunched the label in 99. Yeah. He worked did, at Cargo you know, Records at that time. Yeah, yeah. And the biggest, funniest story is, is I'd lost, completely lost touch with him. He was living in London and I was working in London and uh, he was sharing a house with a girl called Michelle who worked at Nude Records. It was like Suede's label mm-hmm. and they were my customer. And I think I had to leave like an answer phone message at Michelle's house or or something. And John heard the answer phone and said, that guy called Asti didn't used to run a record label, did he? He said, I don't know, I'll ask him. And lo and behold, that's how I got back in touch with John. That's crazy. Because obviously there's no email internet, you know, in those early days. It was all airmail letters that you hoped would arrive and then come back again, you know. Yes. Now, the other question, I mean, did we communicate over email? Because email was really new for me in the early 2000s. Like, I don't remember even when it was, when I even got my, our first real computer. I think it was like 99 or 2000, but it didn't go on the internet. We didn't know what it did. 
<laughs> I know exactly, exactly the same. I mean, I remember because the, the very, very first Boss Tunage website must have been about 1999, and it, I used Front Page Express, and I sort of just scanned, you know, banned photos and made JPEGs, and then then there was this little FTP server called Terrapin. I remember there used to be this turtle that used to go backwards and forwards. I was on dialer, you know, so it just <laughs> took forever to load what these these really simple pages, you know. But uh, yeah. Well, you yeah. were, were kind of on the forefront of all that then. I mean, honestly, I don't think Fat Records had a, re- a, 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 a website at that point. You know what I mean? You think about it, put it in perspective. Yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I think it was because I started working with email in my day job because my day job was working at a CD plant okay. in South London. So um, we, we got email in there, I think, in about 98 time, 1998. It all of a sudden changed over from faxes of orders to emailed orders and stuff. So, uh then I thought, well, I need to get a PC at home. And then it was sort of like doing some quick searches for bands and then sending out the you know, email. If I found someone's email address, I go, oh, hello, it's you know, and got back in touch with people then. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it was, uh, you know, it, I think for me, because I've been, when I dealt with like trying to do the Rise Records in the fast, me and John used to have airmail letters go across, you know, you'd wait for a response and it would take, you know, years. And then you'd have a really expensive long distance phone call to yes. kind of do the finer details. Yes. But then when email came came about, it was like, well, you can actually sort something out with a band in like one evening Yeah. over email. Yeah. And yeah. it sped the whole process up. And then uh, I just started releasing stuff like a man possessed, basically, at that point. Well, I guess you had a deal, right? Making CDs, you must have had a deal at the plant to to print well, off discs. Well, I, yeah, I mean, I moved from the CD plant in two thousand to working for who were effect my my biggest customer, who were a broker, and I still work as a consultant for them now, sort of twenty years on. Um, so when I moved to the broker, they gave me a credit account, and it was like whoa! And then th- there was a load of things all happened within the space of a little time. I got in touch with um, Kaza in Japan who started selling stuff in Japan for us. And all of a sudden I could guarantee an amount of sales, you know, and he'd pay me like a month later and it, it made the whole thing a lot more workable. Yeah. So uh, I could then start to plan ahead what I was going to do. And um, and I think I made a, a conscious decision because I've, I've realized going back and looking at like the first era when I've been doing like the, the videos on that, um, that I was really sort of reliant on shop distributors. Uh, and so when I started up again, you know, the whole network that there was, was to actually find, I'm going to have people in every country who I'm dealing with to distribute the label. And then if we sell some to the stores, that's going to be a bonus. So it all about turned how the label was kind of operating. And um, and that really made it possible. Yeah. Now, were you following the trend or did you just kind of make this up? Because it seems like from what my, my perception of it is that this old machine of the record business was always trying to catch up in the early 2000s, always trying to like be current. Yeah. And, and that's the dawn of like, you know, illegal downloading. And, and the, it's like when the record industry broke it was like 2001. I mean, we, we can all sort of pinpoint almost like a, a, yeah, yeah, a month. Yeah. Right. But, but how did you have the foresight to sort of like, was it just you thinking or did you follow any trends that were like happening? I think it was sort of, I was determined because I'd stopped doing the label in 95 for various reasons. And I actually, I, I ended up working for Earache Records, you know, home of Napalm Death for two years. That was my first job um, before I moved to London and worked at the CD plant. And so I learned a lot about the mecha- the proper mechanics rather than, you know, this you know naive young kid, you know, just putting records out and not really knowing what he should be doing. Right. Uh, like I was in the early days. So I learned a lot of the mechanics about how to run a record label, but there was a lot of, so I sort of cherry picked the bits that I liked from them. So like they had a mailing list. So anyone who wrote in a mail order, they would, they would make a list and they would get a, a newsletter out. So I took that idea and put it into like a DIY punk context. So I, I did that, but I did sort of like a 20 page fanzine, which was almost like news of the upcoming releases. And then we started putting a sampler CD in that. We used to mail out like 500 of these or so. You know, and it, it built to like a thousand. And so we'd send one of those out every three, four months with this is all the upcoming releases. And then you you get orders off the back of that. Mm. Um, and also it, the format had changed because obviously vinyl was kind of on the decline. So everyone was buying CDs then. And CDs were much, much cheaper to ship around the world. So you could send 200 copies to Japan without dual cases and they could assemble them there. It was really sort of, you know, working to the strengths of what the industry was kind of at the time. So actually having the shop distributor became like, well, that 
you know, if they sell some, then that's great. But I'm not, I'm not uh, stuck, you know, uh, having having to be reliant on them to sell because I've been disappointed so many times in the past where yeah. distributors say, oh yeah, we'll sell this, that, the other, and then and then and then they didn't, or they go broke. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So. Um, you know, I mean, it was almost a, a running joke. I, when I restarted, I actually used Cargo in the UK and I'd get send them like 50 or 100 copies of a release. And, and sometimes they actually forgot because I was sending them so much stuff, they actually forgot to release some stuff. <laughs> but it didn't actually kind of matter because I was selling it you know, through Japan. Then we've got the link up in Germany. I was also doing it for other smaller UK punk labels where, you know, I was taking their orders from the guys in japan and sending them out with our releases so mm-hmm. i was doing that and then we were trading with like a lot of labels in europe so they would send stock against our stock and we were selling that obviously on the mail order with the mail order catalog fanzine kind of thing mm-hmm. so i mean it, it was very labor intensive because it was just me doing it <laughs> which <laughs> around a day job <laughs> so yeah. uh so i just literally every weekend i i would just you know you know, sometimes, I, you know, when a mail out happened, we could get like two, three hundred orders. And I just spend the whole weekend packing up <laughs> CD orders, taking them to the post on a, you know, the post office and then back into work again on the Monday. So uh, seven yeah, days was, a week, seven days a week. It was it was seven days a week for sort of four years. And I think that's why I reached like total burnout in about 2004. It was just like, yeah, yeah. And, I, and also at that point, things started to um, change because, I mean, I remember with you guys, you got a review in Kerrang for. Yes, your thing, and it was a four out of five review. Yeah. And at that point, that meant you could get a scale out into HMV record stores in the UK. So you knew you would get two hundred copies. Yeah. So I think we might have even taken that first amount from you in the black sleeve, got the review, and then I think that the distributor wanted two hundred copies, so we said, "Oh, we'll need to repress it." And I think that's when we repressed it. But I could be wrong on that, or it I think, happened soon after. Yeah, I know because I know I got still in my little baby barn in my backyard. I still got about two hundred of them left. Yeah, <laughs> so, it's funny. Some of them I have to I sacrifice the jewel cases because I did my own little solo project. So I was like yeah, taking yeah, the jewel yeah. cases from the Foursquare well, and putting my well, own like burnt CDs in there and selling them. Well, that was the other thing as well for me with with the amount of space because I was living in. I, I moved out of London. We had I was in one bit flat in London. I moved out to a, a small house and it was like eight hundred square foot. This yeah. house, um, and I had a little sort of shed in the garden. So I, I've got that all racked out, but I used to do it. If we were pressing 500 CDs, we might get like one or 200 put in jewel cases for the shops and the distributors and the mail order. And then the 300 balance would be on spindle because yeah. I physically didn't have the space for everything. So anything yeah. that went to Japan was shipped on spindle with the print and they'd assemble it over there. Yeah. Anything that was traded with other labels was sent out. You know, you, know, you could send like a, you know, I can't remember how many CDs off the top of my head now, but if it was under two kilos, you could send it airmail and it cost like next to nothing then. Yeah. yeah. And so that, that was all the mechanics. And then um, obviously it's cost me a bit more now. Now it's, everything's gone back to vinyl again. You know, it's yeah. like I, I, I nearly fainted when I, I would, we've just put out um, the hard ons new album in Europe. Oh, wow. And I just had to ship copies to Japan and Australia today post Brexit. And um, yeah, it was just uh yeah, I've, 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 you know, I've had to get the smelling salts out after I paid the bill for the uh, <laughs> shipping on that. Yeah, it is an interesting uh, um, uh, vinyl coming back is such an interesting concept. I mean, uh, philosophically speaking, it sort of like harkens back into the olden days. But at the same time, and truthfully, and I'm going to say this, I mean, like I've said it a hundred times, actually, when I'm walking through the woods listening to my earbuds on my phone, it seems to, and I got my whole surrounding around me. It seems to make more sense to me listening to music in that sense rather than sort of the whole process sure. of taking the seed record out and putting it on the and spin. I mean, what's what's your look on it? I know everybody has sort of like this sort of romantic yeah, feeling yeah. about it. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think for me, you know, I'm I'm a vinyl nut. I always was, to, you know. I remember when I put out the first CD on the label. I didn't actually have a CD player for about twelve months after <laughs> until I was, you know, so I couldn't play the first CD we we actually put out. Oh my god. Um, but then obviously I was totally CD based sort of in the, you know, two thousands, like everyone was. Um, but you know, I always kept my vinyl and, um, and it, there was a real change here where, um, because Japan was the main place I was selling a lot of stuff, 
they wanted CDs because of space restrictions. You know, yeah. in the Japanese things, they did they they you know they preferred little sort of CDs in cardboard wallets to a dual case, even you know, because it took up less space. Um, it was kind of a cultural thing as well. Um, but it it's kind of developed that you know over here that everyone said it's got to be on vinyl and like CDs and and actually there's a for for like small DIY punk bands if if they could actually get back into a CD kind of thing. There's a lot of benefits for a, a small touring band to do a CD. It costs less, you know, people will pick it up at a gig and put it in their pocket. You know, it's, you know, there's there's a lot of benefits to that. I mean, I'm, I must admit, I was very much uh, against downloads and digital and, and that for a very long time. And I still don't include download codes in the vinyl that we're putting out now. I'll actually include a CD in a PVC wallet. <laughs> so basically, you know, everyone gets the vinyl, but they also get a CD. So, you know, they can either burn that if they want to go and listen to music or if they've still got a CD in their car, you know, CD player in their car, they can listen to it that way. But they've got the vinyl as well, you know. So, um, yeah, so, um, you know, I'm, I'm still format map, but I just don't like putting download codes in. I've never liked a download code. It's just, I don't know why, it's just a personal preference. Hmm. Um, and also because most bands over here, it's like, you know, if you do a download code, you use Bandcamp or something, you get yeah. those little slip, you get those little slips of paper. Yeah. And I did a few, I did one or two of them. And then you'd get people saying, oh, I didn't have a download code in with my yeah. record, you know, because they, they just get lost, you know, and yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. And then, then I saw, you know, people sort of, you know, Facebook posts, I've not used this download code and there's a picture of it. Just download this record, you know, oh, and, shit. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> but it's, you know, it's, it is what it is. I, I, I sort of changed my view with like streaming and things like that because yeah. at first I was like, yeah, what's going on here? But for me, I think you have to look at streaming as like a, a 20, you know, 2022 version of what radio play would have been 20 yeah. years ago. Totally. You know, it's just in a different sort of uh, thing. And, you know, and sometimes I think people do actually listen on Spotify and then will want to go and get that record. I think it does actually work that way. And, but people who were kind of just downloading things to their computer, they they weren't going to buy the record anyway. Yes, no, that's true. And I was, you... I definitely, I've discovered so many good bands and old bands on Spotify by accident because I yeah. listen to an album and then it finishes and then it starts filling in what you think you want to listen to. And yeah. especially when you kind of get into sort of weird, like early 2000s, like alt rock, not alt rock, but indie kind of rock, it starts yeah. like branching into like reinvented versions of, 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 of bands that were around in like the early 90s. It's a yeah. it's a weird wormhole to get into because you'll be driving. Like, Who the hell is this? And you hit the heart. Go, yeah, I like that. And then you go back, and it's like just this world of. It's like yeah, it's like the most friendly record store owner ever, just telling you, yeah. hey, like this, yeah. like this, like that. You know. Yeah, I think and and you know, I mean, a lot of the sort of focus on the label in the last, well, probably the last ten years or so is that I do new bands, but I've also done a lot of reissues yeah. of all the bands that I sort of knew in the late eighties, early nineties, who like kind of you know, got me into the whole scene in the first place. Because um, I, I realised that, you know, I got, you know, into like the whole punk and alternative scene in sort of what, 88, 89 time. At that point, you know, it's only sort of 12 years of punk to look yeah. back and learn about. Now a kid gets into that, you know, and there's, you know, 40 odd years yeah. of stuff there to try to find out about. So yeah. um, so I, that's why I kind of try to document what I know best. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> Did you watch the docu-series Punk? Like, it was on Netflix, I think. Uh, uh, it was just called Punk, I think. Um, Brent Belke from an S SNFU scored it all. Like, he did all the oh, scoring right. for it. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, it's, I believe it's called Punk. You might have to Google that. But it's yeah, like yeah, a no, four I'll, or five-part series going through from the 70s, 80s, 90s, and, and, and present day. Yeah, it rings a bell. It rings a bell. I'll, I'll double-check it out on yeah. uh on Netflix and stuff. I actually was watching, they repeated um, a documentary about Nirvana coming to Britain. Uh, oh, okay. And that was, and I missed that the first time. And I watched that last night, which is really interesting. Cause uh, I, you know, I remember myself and uh, my best friend at university were the only two dancing to smells like teen spirit, at the, <laughs> uh, the university campus. And then two weeks later, the whole dance floor was, it yeah. just went yeah, like a tsunami, you know? It's, yeah. Uh, did you read the book, the Charles Cross? Is it Charles Cross? The book, uh, the um, biography on uh, Kurt Cobain. Uh, I think no, his name no. is Charles Cross. Um, it, it writes and it demystifies a lot of the stuff because Kurt Cobain was like a compulsive liar. Like when he did interviews, yeah. he would just make up stuff, and yeah, people yeah. were like, oh, "He lived under a bridge." And he's like, "No, he actually didn't really live under a bridge." But 
Yeah, it's yeah. an interesting book to read. I, uh, <laughs> I yeah, I really enjoy it. So, so what possessed you to start a, a YouTube um, channel? I mean, you have a lot of content, a lot of content, and a lot of history, and it's the perfect place to tell your the story of your label. But well, what I think, what started it? Well, it's two or threefold. I mean, personally, I started looking a lot more at YouTube and and watching a lot more on YouTube myself over the last couple of years. Not necessarily on music, even, but just using YouTube more. And I've got a nine year old son. And um, he is absolutely like Minecraft and Star Wars mad. And he watches loads of YouTube. And he's gone from being like, when I grow up, I want to be a paleontologist <laughs> to I want to be a YouTuber. Yeah. So there was all that. So and uh, for years, I said, oh, I'll write a book about, you know, my experiences running an independent label on a shoestring single handed for 30 years. And um, and I thought I'll never get around to doing it. So I thought, well, maybe I could put it on YouTube. Maybe that that would be the good way, you know. So I just literally I bought, you know, one camcorder, um, bought Adobe Premiere Pro video editing software, which you know I was really happy to see looked very similar to Audacity and Pro Tools. Ah. So it, it wasn't that kind of you know complicated. Yeah, yeah. And uh, literally bought a couple of books about how to set you know do YouTube channel. And I thought, well, let's go ahead and give it a go and just try and remember all this stuff. Yeah. Um, but I did make a list of all the bands we've dealt with because I was going to do a, you know, I don't want to do like a whole history of each band, just the period that we are, yeah. that we were involved that I know about and my remember, you know, what I remember from, from dealing with each band at that time. Mm -hmm. And there's something like 250 bands in 32 years to, to do stuff. So it's going to, I think the stuff I'm releasing now will only kind of come out on YouTube probably in about two years time. Because yeah. <laughs> even like doing that, there's just so much stuff. And then it's, it's, you know, send me down little wormholes of other things I've remembered. And um, so, yeah. And, and then the amazing thing has been sort of like people sort of getting in touch with me again um because you know as you can imagine yeah whereas i try to keep in touch with everyone that i've done because there's no one really i can't think that we ended up being sort of acrimonious with mm -hmm. you know who we dealt with and um but you know when you've got 250 different bands you know just trying to keep in touch with all those people to say how how's it getting on and you know it, you know life just gets in the way and, yeah. and it's the perfect way that you know um bit by bit people have sort of like saying oh yeah i you know and and it's been great to sort of you know you know chat to those people again and um like yourself yeah yeah so uh, for sure for sure <laughs> yeah because we also had a brock pytel connection because you were you put out a brock solo record i think that's that, right and yeah, i yeah. i actually um recorded something on it and maybe yeah, yeah. that's how we met but then there was also a five foot nothing connection which is another yes. Pickering band, band out <laughs> yeah, of Pickering. Yeah. And then I, the original singer, I don't think I ever recorded with him, was in that band Trigger Happy. And I was yes, in Trigger Happy. Yeah. And then that's sort of how, I'm just yeah, trying to figure yeah. out how we all, how we how we found each other in the universe. Uh, yeah, I think that, some, that, something to do with maybe Brock, because through Brock or something. Yeah, yeah. And Brock came about, I'm sure, from Sean from the Asexuals. Yeah. Saying get in touch. Yeah, because yeah. I was doing the Asexuals and... Um, you know, and then when I did Brock, we did the Doughboys. That led me to meet like John Kastner. And then yeah. we did All Systems Go. And I did the John Kastner solo album. And yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so everything snowboarded. And it was all from different, even to the thing I did this band from Chicago called Woolworthy. And the whole reason I did them and learned about them is they had covered an asexual song. And they sent it me on email saying, oh, we've covered Love Goes Blab by asexuals. Yeah, what do you think? And that's how I discovered them. You know, and it was just one bad just led to another and over a period of two three years it just it just ballooned yeah and it and it and it just got crazy i mean i think there's one year in either 2001 or 2002 i put out 44 releases in a year <laughs> one and, a week and you know like yeah we, yeah when yeah literally one a week and you know when you used to do like promos out you might do like two or three releases out to like magazines and stuff <laughs> i had one promo mail out that was 17 releases oh my god <laughs> to all the magazines you know wow. but it, but then it just it kept ballooning, and then it was like a big bubble that was going to pop at some point. And um, in about two thousand and four, it just I just ran up massive debts. Um, stuff <laughs> wasn't selling enough, and um, yeah, I had to remortgage my house um, really? to kind of clear the debt off because um, I just had a had a row. It all changed because um, I just did a few things that you know, in hindsight, I should never have agreed to do. They were four just, square record. 
No, no, uh, this, this was after Foursquare because you, uh, you guys went on to Bad Taste. That's right, we did, yeah. yeah. And yeah. I think because I was dealing with Bad Taste about doing the All Systems Go record, we did like a trade, and that's, I think, how Bjorn at Bad Taste heard Foursquare, possibly. Yes. And approached you about doing the next record. Yeah, that was interesting because I, because, well, the Bad Taste connection is, is, is weirder because they put out a Trigger Happy record, and then before, yeah. after I, long after I quit the band, and then they put out Danko Jones, which is another Pickering yeah. group, <laughs> and right. and um, and somehow I just I, and that's an interesting concept of what you just said there because I would never have thought that you were doing a trade with them already because I sent them this demo and immediately Jonas got back to me and said, "Hey, we want to put this out." This and I'm like, "No, these are the demos." Yeah. Like, and he goes, yeah, "No, no, yeah. we'll put this <laughs> yeah. out." And I'm like, "So I'm like, well, we know we got to record a record first, and that's how we recorded our second record is under." under bad taste but i always thought that was an interesting i've never even thought because it was so bam bam like because you know you send something yeah. you're like nothing or thanks but you suck we're not putting your record yeah, out yeah, yeah. But, but that was one of those immediate like first thing i sent was to bad yeah, taste yeah. records yeah yeah i know and then we we ended up trading i think with with bad taste and we used to carry like we i had about 100 copies of three chords one capo you know when it came out that we were selling obviously in the uk because we we'd done when weeks were weekends so uh you know it was quite a good thing and i know that you know when the hard-ons approached because they'd also been on bad taste yeah. uh to do it i got in touch with the bad taste guy and they said no no it's fine you know you go ahead and there was a there was a real you know making sure that everyone was happy that everyone was working with everyone else and you know that that was really important i thought at the time you know so uh yeah the community it's funny you say the community because it's a community of of people like-minded um that are all kind of out for you, looking out for each other i mean do you is that a thing today now like is this a thing i, th I think it still is you know yeah. there are still people that i'm working with now obviously i still work with kaza in japan um you know releasing the stuff over there uh I used to deal a lot with uh, Flight 13 in Germany. I still deal with them. Uh, Jürgen, who used to work at Flight 13, went on to do Rookie Records. So that's how I, I've done loads of co-releases like Sperm Birds and, and some German bands with them. And uh, so, yes, yeah, so pretty much everyone that I kind of, you know, and also in my day job, I do a lot of smaller UK band, uh, UK labels. I look oversee their manufacture for them. Right. So I'm still, so I still got fingers in pies here, there, and everywhere. But uh, you know, it seems to work quite well. And yeah. um, you know, I'm I've obviously slowed down now because you know I'm we're not getting any younger, and you know I can't put forty releases out a year anymore. That's for sure. But uh, well, it's just not feasible. I mean, yeah, yeah, it doesn't work. People don't buy CDs anymore, right? Yeah, or yeah, do exactly. They? I don't and, know. <laughs> um, yeah, and also now it's a lot harder with. Um, you know, for, for us, you know, you couldn't just solely do a, a band for a UK release. We'd have to have like Europe or Japan on there as well. Yeah. You know, so there are some late, you know, so, we, you know, we're doing the Moving Targets is obviously one of the bigger bands that we are kind of doing now. So we've been working, we did their last two albums. Uh, they're going to record their third one very soon. And we'll probably put that out in Europe and Japan. And then a label in the States will put it out stateside. Is so, uh, yeah. Is Cobra Side still a thing? Because they were doing, they I did all the bad so. taste record stuff. In, in the yeah, US. yeah. I mean, I know that John Kastner was involved with Cobra Side for yeah. things. They did carry my stuff for, a, but we never kind of, yeah. You know, that's the one thing that's probably sort of, you know, I've never really had proper, solid, lasting US and Canadian distribution for the label. And that, yeah. as much as I tried for a long time, with there was a guy called Glenn who did a label called Does Everyone Stare. Oh yeah, I remember. And we did. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. we did loads and loads of co-releases, you know, which were came kind of like, you know, well, I'm putting this out, okay, well, I'll have 500 of them, well, I'm putting this out, so well, I'll take, I'll take 250 of those and 250 of that one, and we'll swap, and that that's how we did it. So he was doing a lot of the Bostunish stuff uh, for a while, but then he um, he emigrated to Australia, so it all kind of ended at a point, and. Um, but yeah, but so I mean, apart from like things that come out on export, I've I've not really got. Um, I got my fingers burnt by Lumberjack Mordam in about two thousand and seven, where they went under and you know lost a lot of stock at that point and uh, stuff. So I've, I've never really. It's the one thing you know that's never really happened. I've I've had this great network, so I try to work with um, American labels now if we're going to co-release something so they can just, you know, you get on with America and I'll, I'll, I'll just concentrate over in Europe, Europe and Japan. Mm -hmm. And that seems to kind of work 
work okay. Yeah. Yeah, there was, I mean, that happened to us on our second uh, Bad Taste release where it was in all the distribution warehouses and then this whole chain went broke. Yeah. And we lost like a lot of CDs and I don't know if we ever got them back. And yeah, uh, yeah. actually, you know, I think it's, it's, it's history now, but Bad Taste and I had a falling out because I don't even think they, it felt like they didn't even actually print any. Because sure. you know we're yeah. opening up for some forty one in in and in Europe and in, in UK, and there's like no stock. There's nothing coming to us. I'm like, well, we could have sold two hundred CDs tonight, you know. Yeah. So yeah. there was this sort of like I found it was my connection because I used to work for them, but it, or for some forty one. But I was like sort of like, well, why isn't there any CDs coming? Well, you got mm. stuck or they're not here. And then I found out like, well, we lost like three companies went bankrupt. Um, yeah, distribution houses. So, rather than print new discs, they couldn't afford that. You know. Yeah. So I'm yeah. convinced there's maybe only 500 copies of Industry at Home circulating sure. around the world, <laughs> yeah. and I think I got like 30 of them. <laughs> yeah, I think I think that's the thing. I, I saw I mentioned it actually on a, a video I did the other day, which will come out on the YouTube channel soon. Um, but I think a lot of people don't realize that Boss Tunes they see the amount of stuff we did, and they immediately must think we must have been on some kind of manufacturing and distributing deal with a distributor mm. you know but no never it, i i funded it all so um mainly through a, a credit account when i changed jobs obviously because <laughs> i could kind of work it that when it was due to be paid that like japan would pay me and then we'd, we'd be able to do the next one and stuff and uh yeah but it's uh yeah I, I do look back now and I think like, I, I mean, I think it's somewhere between four and 500 releases I've done. Um, yeah. And it's just, uh, it's crackers to think that it, it's that kind of many, <laughs> to be honest. Well, yeah, I, to, the, to me, I always, I always knew you put a lot of records out, like sometimes like more than cargo, it felt like, <laughs> you know, and they yeah, put yeah, a lot yeah. of records out. Um, but it felt like, um, how do you focus your attention on so many things uh, that, you know, especially where something might take off. Like, for instance, if you would have had the next, like that Offspring record and you had yeah. these 399 other releases, it would have been a tough go because you wouldn't be able to scale up fast enough to get enough people exactly, to exactly. work. Exactly, exactly. I think, I think very early on, I decided that, you know, if a band w was looking to get this to next level, then I wasn't the label that they should be on with the way that I was set up. Yeah. Um, I mean, a good example of that is, I don't know if you know the UK band Slaves. No. Uh, they were a two-piece band, and um, we helped them put out their first CD. And you, there was a real buzz on the band. And so I had to make the judgment call, do I try and spend a lot of money on press PR to sort of like on the chance that these guys are going to really explode, or do I let someone else do that? And I actually chose to let someone else do that. And they ended up, being on Jules Holland, got signed to EMI, you know, they had a top 10 album and stuff. So it was the best decision for the band. Mm -hmm. um, because for me, you know, I, I suppose that, you know, that's, that's my thing. I'm, I've always been, it's always been a case of that, you know, I always wanted to under promise and over deliver for a band rather than over promise and under deliver. Cause yeah. I, I, in the first few years I'd over promised and under delivered. <laughs> so I wanted to make sure that, you know, I was saying, you know, I can do this, I could do that, anything else is a bonus, you know, and, you know, and that took away a lot of the pressure for me that, you know, I know that I'm going to be able to sell this, the band are going to have those copies, et cetera, et cetera. You know, everyone's happy, everyone knows the thing, the score, and, you know, and that just worked better for me personally, I think, because um, obviously having worked at Earache, I'd seen how much money they were spending on pushing a particular band to try to chart them. and. For me, that was like, well, I could use all that money to like put out ten other bands. Yeah. That that was more of a priority to me, you yeah. know. Yeah, well, <laughs> it's sort of the new age way of thinking too. When you come about promotion and publicity, is that publicists yeah. are people that used to work for labels now are just independent publicists. To you know, I worked with uh, Melanie Kay, who used to work yeah. for Fat Records, and she was Fat Records Canada basically. And yeah. so she sends me almost every interview now because it's like I've. I've spoken to all my friends, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like yeah, yeah, 320 yeah. something episodes later, uh, you know, I, and I would attribute to mostly a third of those coming from that publicist, you know, and some of them yeah. are awesome and some of them are not so awesome, but that's sort of yeah. par for the course, right? When you're dealing with a weekly podcast, you know? And exactly. I think to sort of break, it, it, there was such an element in the UK, at least of luck 
to break a band into yeah. the next. It's thing. everywhere. That luck thing yeah. is sort of that's North America. That's universal. You know what yeah. I mean? Like you can spend as much money as you try and want, but it's ultimately down to getting a bunch of people to think like the band so they can go buy the record. You know? Exactly. That's what exactly. makes a hit, right? Yeah. I mean, the, the guy who um who was in my first band when I was 16, 17, he started a label and um and he happened to do this band called Gallows. Yeah, and yeah, obviously yeah. Gallows went front page of NME, front page of Kerrang, you know, he did really well on it. But it he then was expecting every band that he did would would do the same, which they didn't. Yeah. So um it's yeah, for me, a lot of things change. That the change with distributors, where HMB all of a sudden, rather than having a central buyer, let all the stores do their own buying. Oh. So you could no longer guarantee that you would get a scale out to HMB of all these CDs in one go if you got a good review. So it became a lot more like you know. I remember with the the, the band Slaves, my my distributor at the time, I kept saying to him, "You need to take more more of this CD. This band is going to be huge. You know, they're mm -hmm. going to." Yeah, it's going to be big. And they were kind of, oh, well, yeah, whatever, you know, weren't really interested. And then when they appeared on TV, I mean, I'd sold all the CDs that, you know, I I had from the deal we we did with the band. And then they appeared on Jules Holland's, you know, later program, you know, in the yeah. UK. Which is, and they came back and said, we, we need 400 more copies of that Slave CD you did. And I said, well, I've been telling you for like the last year, they're yeah. going to be big and I haven't got any copies left now. So I'm yeah. sorry, can't do it. You know. Yeah, and it takes a while to print, and and by that time you might have missed the window. I mean, like yeah, and we only ever had the deal for that very first pressing, you know, because yeah. they, you know, I, you know, I didn't want to. I mean, a lot of the bands that were on the label, they they pay for their recordings, so they own it, you yeah. know, and so for a lot of the time, there are there are exceptions to that. There are bands that I have, you know, paid the recording and the whole thing, and we own that. But a lot of those bands, you know, I was very much. I think it comes down to the old crass and kind of you know the anarcho. DIY ethos, you know, it was like, you know, you're the band, you you need to have the ownership of this, which, yeah. you know, some of their indie labels would be like turning in their grave, you know, with, others, with me saying that. But, you know, for me, that was kind of important because I, I got to the point with it where if a band wasn't happy, I wanted it to be easy for them to walk away with what they'd done and go elsewhere. Yeah. Yeah. Makes perfect sense. I mean, if you're dealing mostly, I don't think we even had a contract. I think it no, was no, it was no. like a verbial proverbial spit handshake. Yeah, and, you I think know. I probably if I don't include like all the reissues where I've licensed the recordings from other labels where I've had, obviously had proper licensing yeah. agreements. I think I've had sort of like maybe two three contracts in those yeah. in all those years, and that was with more established bands where it was more for my peace of mind. Right. That yeah you know, that that yeah you know, they they would be expecting that. Yeah. No, it's a <laughs> um, wise decision to not have to worry about. The recording of it, because if the band gives you a recording and it's not very good, it's up to you to go, I don't think this is going to maybe go back and remix it or do something. Or it's up to you exactly, to say, yeah. you go spend some more money on this. Don't do it on your four track and then bring it. You yeah, know, it yeah. gives you some crea some, uh, I guess, control of um, um, artist. Not uh, what am I trying to say? Like, you know, it gives you some sort of like freedom to say whether or not you can or cannot put this record out. You know? Yeah, yeah, and I I got my fingers really burned with the very second release I did, where it was a rush to get it for the bands on tour, and they literally recorded it, went to the broker, and it went off to be pressed, and I hadn't heard it, and the first I heard it was when it came back, and I just went, oh my god, you know, this is awful. Yeah. I think you, you told know? that story. And, uh, you told that story. I did. Yeah, damage, damage. Yeah, yeah. and their, their demo was infinitely better, and for years I've kind of just gone, you know, that that was it, you know. You know, I've got to hear anything that I'm going to be releasing before it actually gets pressed. You know, <laughs> you think? Yeah, but I was I was 17 at the time. You know, and I was making it up as I go went along. Yeah. I really was. No, you know, I you uh, know I appreciate that. I mean, for people to do that from that early age of like in their teens to you know, and then inadvertently your whole life you've been doing this your whole life, and to yeah, sort of like much, yeah. uh, now it seems like all the lessons you've learned on on how to do it safely, so you can keep that nice backyard i can see there and a dog running yeah. around and like there's a certain type of like self-preservation that needs to take place as an industry person you know yeah yeah for, you and know i think go ahead yeah i think yeah no and i think sort of um if i look back to sort of the period when we were working together so like in that 1999 to 2004 probably if some of the bands approached me now with what they wanted to do i would say well no that's not going to work for me 
where it was wet then i'd have gone oh yeah brilliant yeah, let's do it you know and that's yeah that's you know so I, i'm very much now i'm only going to do this record i don't care if you're my favorite band in the world yeah. and you've come here and you want me to put your record out i can only do it if it if this this and this happens and i know it's going to work rather than just say oh yeah brilliant let's do it and yeah. um you know which yeah you know, there was probably a few instances of that you know with with certain bands where you know i was such a fanboy i was just over the moon to be releasing like someone's record of who i jumped around in my bedroom to when i was like 17 18 you know mm -hmm. and um you know and I, but I think that comes with like a maturity and realizing and you know you know, you know what the best things are to do and getting a thing and, and being very much led by the people who i trust who've been selling my records for 20 years you know i get their opinion you know very often i'll say like oh i've been speaking to such and such a band you know how do you think this will do in japan you know and i know kaza will give me an honest opinion yeah and and yeah. you know before you know and there were, because japan was such a weird market where some bands i thought would just fly out and then others but they'd sell nothing and other bands i thought no one's going to be interested in, that in japan and we sold loads you know yeah. and um you know so um you know and the, the holy grail for me probably on the label is having a band that i know will sell well in uk well in germany and well in japan in all three and that's sort of like three ticks and that's that that's something you want but and that allows me to still do newer bands that i can take a bit of a punt on and and see what happens if i really like them yeah and it's just getting that happy balance you know well how how uh, important now is it for bands to play live shows and tour and commit time and invest time into the band because right now it seems like in europe bands tour in the weekends if they're from europe you know they don't they don't sort yeah, of take yeah. a week you know german bands will just go play two towns or two cities and come home back for work from monday um yeah how important is, I, I already know the answers but to you how <laughs> much more important is it to you as a label as a band who can mobilize and go push the push you know push uh, the snake the, oil <laughs> yeah i mean you know if a band wants to tour then it is obviously great it does help um i think bands have to be more motivated you know if i'm going back not not necessarily established bands but newer bands you know it's no good you saying yeah let's put out our record and then like three four months later they oh well we've released a record we're splitting up now you yeah. know because <laughs> that's happened so many times people think yeah oh, mission accomplished done yeah. you know so bands have to actually you know for the smaller newer bands a lot of the time we're actually working with the bands and they're putting a financial contribution into putting that record out which again is like more impetus for them to go out and promote it um you know because you know i, I you know i can't sink all my money into 512 inch records and you're not going to do anything yeah you know we're not going to sell them yeah yeah so um but if you know if we do it where you're taking say half the pressing and paying a contribution towards that then there is an onus on you to get your money back for your section and i've handled all the shops and mail order and everything i'm doing that for you in the promo and if you go out on tour then you can generate that and then we'll we'll both you know yeah so it's very much uh, working together um with established bands i think that you know i mean a lot of the, our best sellers are actually been the stuff that we've reissued um you know established bands from back in the day repackaging their stuff and there's obviously a big move with that with like other labels repackaging 30th anniversary editions and oh, yeah. things like that and um i mean the one that was very fortuitous for me recently was um i was speaking to bmg um because i i did stuff with jilted john you know who did the old gordon is a moron one-off hit and mm -hmm. with with him and he was going to reform and do a 40th anniversary tour and i was speaking to bmg and we licensed like his album from the day uh and i was saying well what else is there and they gave me like a list of everything they had and i licensed from them the coventry automatics which is the specials demos oh wow wow yeah 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 and then the specials announced they're reforming <laughs> and had a number one album jesus yeah and i'd got it for, and i had the the coventry automatics as a three-year license with bmg uh so that <laughs> but those don't come along very often they're like a once in a five year kind of uh you know wonderful thing that happens by accident and yeah. um yeah so but yeah so it's um you know i mean we've got moving targets are coming over again in europe in june um but obviously 
I think they're going to record very soon the the album. But we were, with the delays on getting vinyl made and CDs, the album's going to not be out for the tour. It'll be probably end of this year, beginning of next year. Yeah. Um, just with the long delays, but um, you know, but I think they want to come back again because they were supposed to come just pre-COVID and lockdown. And um, I mean, for me, lockdown was no different. I've worked from home for eleven years in my job. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so there was no difference. You know, I worked all the way through lockdown, you know, just as I had done before. And the one thing that I noticed was that our releases that we did at the very beginning of the lockdowns in the UK actually sold really well because people who perhaps, you know, they're, the way that they invested in music was to go to gigs suddenly thought, well, I can't do that now. So I'm going to buy records. Mm. So, the, you know, we put a couple of releases out and they flew out, you know, at the beginning of lockdown. And then, um, yeah, but then we had nothing else lined up you know we had one band bless them where they wanted to go in and re-record their guitars on their album and they had to wait nearly 10 months before they could get back into a studio to re-record the guitars with all the different various lockdowns that happened so uh, their records finally and then then when they finally did we then suddenly had these massive supply chain issues on vinyl manufacture and like the turn turnaround time to get vinyl made went from four months to like 11 months so um it's been a very long process with that particular album but yeah, it's funny. Now you mentioned record pressing. I got to tell you this story. I lived in Winnipeg, middle of Canada for a couple of years, played in a band there. And um, I, I'm looking through the newspaper and there is a label in Winnipeg called KTEL Records. And they they do the mini pops. I don't know if you've ever seen, like it's a kid's, maybe it's just a Canadian centric thing, but it's called the mini pops. Yeah. It's kids singing hits of the day. So do you like, know what? They had something similar to that in the UK in like the yeah. in the early eighties for a short yeah. while. So yeah. they used to make their own records and they had a yeah. pressing plant that was for sale in the right. classifieds for eighteen hundred dollars. <laughs> oh my goodness. I know. It was the size of a garage, right? Like I saw a yeah, picture, yeah, I'm like, yeah. it's the and, I, and I'm like, oh, I don't know. I can't afford 1800 bucks. <laughs> you know what I'm mean? like to have that foresight because I think there's only like yeah. three major places. Now it feels like there's like yeah. somewhere in Eastern Europe and there's California, but it's like, yeah. but to have the foresight to buy that and put it on ice for 20 years. And then it was like, Oh, y'all want records. Okay. Yeah. You know, and to have a pressing a whole thing, the whole kit and caboodle. I was like, man, yeah. 1800 bucks. Wow. Wow. <laughs> No, I could have sold that for twice what it's worth, like right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know. I mean, in my day job, you know, the, the delays on vinyl manufacture have been the absolute bane of my life for the last 12 months, where it's been constantly telling people bad news. No, you're not getting your records, and they can't get that particular color of granulate for the color vinyl you want for another four weeks. So, yeah. you know, you, rec- you thought those records were shipping today. It's now going to be five weeks later. Yeah. And, and there was constant, that's been constant. I mean, it's, it's affected the. Re- the label as well you know i mean i just repressed a band called diaz brothers who um is sort of out the remnants of hdq and the jones who we did records by uh their band and uh, it's the third pressing of their album and they actually booked a tour in october november time because when we placed the reorder that was when it was scheduled to be due and the records finally arrived uh last week so they've done another tour they arrived for that tour but yeah. <laughs> You know, it's uh, so it's been absolute, you know, so there was, there's been literally a big long gap this last year where I haven't released anything hardly. I had a release yeah. in February, then the hard ons on CD in October because I couldn't get the vinyl and the vinyl is just coming out now. So uh, this is all the stuff that should have been out end of 2021 is now coming through now. So uh, it's, you know, I've just had to take, you know, I've just had to slow it down. Um, you know, it's been, I had taken the, actually the idea that I was going to slow down the amount I was releasing on the label. So I was kind of like slowly peddling, you know, <laughs> down to, I, I wanted to do about half a dozen releases a year. That's what I feel sort of like is a nice manageable level for me these days yeah. um, to do. And of course I've been doing loads of reissues and it just so happened that when the whole lockdowns had happened, I'd had no reissues even planned or lined up, which would have mm. been the perfect thing to do. When, when the bands couldn't get in and record things. So, yeah, um, yeah. so yeah, so it is, it is what it is, but thank goodness I had the heart, you know, in a way in 2019, I'd already made that conscious decision to slow down with what I was doing. Cause before that it was always, it was still that I need a release every month to keep the money, you know, the wheels moving and yeah. they're oiled, you know? Yeah. And, um, yeah, yeah, so that, that, that was quite, uh, yeah, just the way it worked out really. 
Yeah, well, I mean, it is, it's astounding to say, you know, I mean, honestly, there, with a, there is suffering that involves, you take you into your own account for doing something like, you know, it's not like you meant to suffer, but suffering is a part of this. It's not yeah. the easy route. It's, it's the hard road. And, yeah. you know, for you to start at 17, bright eyed and bushy tailed about how, you know, <laughs> we're going to conquer the world with punk rock to yeah. go to 20, 30 years later and go, here's what I'm still doing. And it's still part of my fabric. I mean, there's yeah. a lot of people who've dropped out, you know, that I've seen, you know, I've been doing it a long time too. You know, you see yeah. people sort of fizzle out and move, a, move away and get out of it and get into like real job situations. And I don't begrudge yeah. those people really. I yeah. think that's yeah. probably a pretty smart thing to do. Not a lot, yeah. not all of us yeah. land on our feet. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, I've been really lucky because obviously my, my wife, Julie, we were, we've been together for 29 years. She was very long suffering. <laughs> with me obviously with the label and um we moved up to we moved out of like the london area about six years ago now we live up in rural northumberland which is sort of the bit between by the scottish border basically so yeah. I'm about 10, 10 miles from scotland and julie for years had wanted to run holiday cottages and that's kind of our business that we do um so so she's let me follow my dream for so long and now it's like I'm, I'm returning the favor a bit. Yeah. It's it's come to that point. So so it's nice to not have all my eggs in the music industry basket um, day to day. There's another string to my bow um, that's that's happened because of that. And um, you know, and I think it's only fair because you know the amount of times that she'd just be uh, you know because I'd used to go to gigs and then people would start chatting to me and she'd be just sort of like sat there looking at her watch, you know, thinking when when we're going home, you know, but. Uh, <laughs> but she 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 helped me a lot. She helped with the mail order for a while, and um, you know, constant support really. And yeah. you know, without that and the support of my parents in the very early days, helping me when I was kind of crashing and burning a lot with the label yeah. uh, to keep things going. Um, you know, the you know, and then obviously the contacts with the Kaza in Japan for twenty odd years, and Jurgen in Germany, and Tom at Flight Thirteen. And without those kind of people along the way, you know, supporting it, it just wouldn't have happened. It it, it just wouldn't have, have worked. Yeah. Well, that's, you know, like now you might not, maybe you do remember this, but when Goober Patrol first came over to Canada, they toured with Good Riddance and I was Good Riddance's sound guy. They told yeah. me a story about you that, oh, no. <laughs> that apparently uh, yeah. a car of yours with records in it caught on fire. Yes. Is this, no, that was in ah, your back shed. No, no, not quite that. Cause so, Obviously, in the very early days of the label, I used to send everything out, sale or return, to all these little DIY distros, you know, through the mail, who basically sold punk records through the mail order, and they all used to take things sale or return. So you'd send them out with like a little invoice book, little invoice in with it, then you wait for them to pay you, and it took forever. And uh, I used to have this carbon copy book which kept a record of who owed me what for every release. So this was. And then in early 93, so it was about three years worth of these like invoices in this book of who owed, still owed me money for the records. And um, I was at university and Google were going to go off to do some shows in France. And um, so basically they called me up saying, we need some stock Aston. And, and because I was in university, I asked my parents who, where the stock was at my parents' house to drive to Norwich where Google Patrol were to drop off some records for them. And I said to my mum, oh, take the invoice book with you so we can just keep a record of what stuff they've had so we know, et cetera, et cetera. So they did that. My parents just go you know, park up in Norwich city centre, the van, go off to have something to eat. And when they came back to the car park, the van had gone and then it was found burnt out two days later. So I lost the record, the entire record of who I'd, I had no clue. And there was probably like two, three thousand pounds worth of, stock out on sale or return i had no idea who owed me money oh, or anything God. and that's what literally that was the start of why the, the label kind of folded in 94 because uh i just you know i just had to write off you know what i basically knew was going to eventually pay for about two or three releases that i promised to do and then uh, so yes yeah, so the label had no money at all basically <laughs> at that point because i released a compilation album that was sold really badly as well. And that was and it. So, yeah. yeah, so and it just, the whole momentum just got lost. And then, so I had the decision. The idea was when I finished my degree course, I was going to go, there was a thing called the Enterprise Allowance Scheme in the UK there, where the government would fund you like a, a minimum wage and give you some money to set up a business. So that was my whole idea. I was going to start the record label as soon as I graduated. And then my last year of my degree course, 
I had to do a six week placement. And because um, I was living in Leicester, the, I wanted to do something music industry based. And the only thing I could think of doing was uh, going to Earache in Nottingham because they were like 20 miles down the road. And they ended up offering me a job. So I ended up working as the production manager at Earache for straight out of university for two years. Um, but it was made very clear to me that I couldn't do my own label whilst I worked at Earache. And oh, uh, okay. yeah. yeah, yeah. And so it just basically my wings were totally clipped and, and I didn't enjoy the job. And uh, we bought a house soon after that. So I felt really sort of, you know, my, yeah. So I, I lost my love of music from my first job because it was a soul destroying experience yeah. working there. Oh. And I wasn't, I wasn't into the bands in, in, in the main, you know, a few bands on Eric I liked, yeah, but, uh, you know, doing all this death metal at that time, it was just, you know, and then there's me, a massive Descendants fan, you know, it was just, uh, <laughs> and it, it wasn't a nice working environment. And yeah. I realize that now looking back, you know, but, um, it taught me a lot about how to run a record label, the mechanics, but it also taught me a lot about how not to run a record label as well with the way that artist relations were kind of done there. And, yeah. um, but I, I totally went off music. I just got into film. Um, yeah. If I look back now, I was probably depressed. Uh, I yeah. can probably say. Um, no, it's safe but to say, I, yeah. So then, my, you know, I couldn't do the label and my focus went totally on trying to get out of working at Earache and look for a new job. So I had lots of uh, relatives had uh, funerals where I'd go out to do all these job interviews because wow. um, I couldn't get the time off work because yeah, I had very yeah, limited yeah. work. But, um, but I ended up going down. I, I got down to the last two to work at Creation in the, you know, in the height of Britpop, Oasis and things like that. So, um, yeah, I just missed out on that one. But then, then I got in the end, I ended up working for this CD plant called Making Records. And the funniest story with that is that um, Making Records also owned One Little Indian which was Bjork's label and oh, also wow. Elemental, which was Rocket from the Crips label at oh, the time. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I years later, I did a Big Drill Car best of and was speaking to Greg Jacobs, who's kind of obviously managed Big Drill Car, also managed Rocket from the Crip and Crypt. And we realized that where I was sat in the office, he must have just been walking past me when Rocket from the Crypt was happening. My God. You know, 20 years earlier, yeah. you know, not knowing who he was, walking backwards and forwards past me at my desk at the job I was doing. My God. So, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that Scream Jacket, the Scream record is one of my f top five records of all time, I'd say. Yeah, yeah. So good. No, it's, uh, yeah, so there's, there's been lots of little uh, things that have happened along the way that, you know, these weird coincidences that have led to other things happening. And it's, uh, yeah. every, everyone's interlinked, I think. Oh, totally. Absolutely. You know, yeah. I, I think, too, um, how you conduct yourself as a 20-something and how you conduct yourself now, the that 20 something is sort of dictates what you're going to be in your later years, you know? And if you're yeah. not a dick and you're not a person that sort of like pisses people off or steals money from people, you're going to keep yeah. working in the business. You know, you're still yeah. going to, you're yeah. going to keep with it or people are going to ask you for your opinion or what you think of things. And like, I'm in that stage now where like, so what's it like being a band? You know, it's like, <laughs> I don't know anymore. I haven't been in a band, <laughs> you know, but, but, or where can we play in California? And I don't know. I'm fucking played there. And like, 30 years i, I don't know, don't I, know. Me. I, I, st I still get that with sort of newer bands oh can you do you book any shows and it's like well no i haven't booked a tour since like you know 2002 or something yeah. you know all so the clubs like, are closed <laughs> yeah 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 all the promoters you know yeah, they're probably dead uh, yeah. yeah or dead yeah. or working other jobs yeah, yeah. There, there's a there's you know it's an interesting um yeah to sort of stick with it it's tough to be like to be like the old guy get off my lawn kind of vibe or jaded and yeah. I don't really sense that for you. And I've tried my whole life to not be like that. You know, yeah, so, yeah, you know, exactly. Just don't exactly. be a, just um, don't be an asshole, and people will be nice to you. And if you're nice to them, and it all feeds itself, and you can't make everybody happy. You know, that's another thing about being an adult is that you don't have to please everybody all the time. It's not yeah, important yeah, anymore. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Well, man, you're doing the Lord's work. Um, still <laughs> to this day, I I'm going to hit stop, but I'm I'm but still have a few things that I want to want to want to talk to you about because it's been a while. Yeah, so, yeah. but yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks, thanks for doing the show, man. Let's do it again. Yeah, definitely. No, it's been fun. It's been fun reminiscing. And that was Mr. Austin Stevens from Bostonish Records. Go check out his YouTube channel. It will be in the description. If you like punk rock as well as just the knowledge of so much independent music go check out that youtube it's fascinating it's fun to watch storytelling that's what we do here 
know what I keep forgetting to tell you is that I have a spot. We're on Spotify. Podcast is on Spotify. Go check it out. Just search Apple Podcast. You don't. There's one weird one in there that has like one episode that's some French, some France called Podcast. I don't know what it is. It's actually, I don't understand what it is. If anybody understands French, let me know what that podcast is about. And I might say, we've been doing podcast. I've been doing podcasts for seven years. I think they just put one episode out and that was it. So I think they, they shouldn't have that there. That's just my thoughts. That's all I say. Oh yeah, just all the stuff at the start. You know, support the support the show and support support music. Go go look listen to Aston's channel because we'll watch go watch Aston's channel. Just do that. You'll enjoy and, and you'll have fun because he's a great storyteller and he's a good dude and he deserves it. Yeah. So anyways, I'm sorry it took four weeks to put an episode out. It's been hot COVID. That's what happened. I was down for two weeks. I work now it looks like work and this documentary is just piling up interviews in May which is where we're now at least five or six people maybe it's just taking a lot of time and I think the payoff will be great and I hope you guys tune in and watch there'll be more pushing as we go further down the road on this podcast journey or this documentary journey which is I am rambling we'll see you uh, you know what I'm gonna see you next week because episodes lined up interview thanks to Mel K and uh, you'll see me next week and see me the week after and I'll just keep okay everybody have a great week